A reading of God's word from Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 3. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And now from Genesis 38, 24 through 30. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, Bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew his hand back in, his brother came out and she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Devana, for reading the scripture for us this morning. And welcome to you all. Uh, I'm happy to join the many voices who have already welcomed you this morning. My name is Matt Doherty, and I'm the director of student ministries here at WCPC, and I'm happy to share today's word with you, to dive into that story that might sound a little bit weird or complicated, but my hope is that if we sit with it, we'll have some good news to come out of the end of it. But I want to start by painting a little bit of a picture for you about the sort of season that we're in as a church right now. Because when you're a young kid, you're really good at anticipating, but you're a bit awful at actually waiting. Because you know your friend is coming over and you're so full of anticipation for a fun play date that it makes it impossible to sit still and wait patiently. You know the school bell is gonna ring in probably 10 minutes before the end of the day. So obviously you have to start packing your backpack right now before the bell rings. And you know it's about dinner time and you see those chicken nuggets in the oven and you start to want these nuggets early and you see the timer and you think, I don't trust that timer. They're probably ready now. You just pull them out early. When you're young, you're great at anticipating, but you're awful at waiting. And so something about maturing brings about the ability to wait with great anticipation. I actually remember one Christmas where there was a really specific present that I wanted. It was Guitar Hero World Tour. Yes, uh, I love listening to music and rock music is a special preference of mine. I'm actually awful at playing real instruments, so I really wanted this game because that meant I could live out all of my rock star dreams without any of the hard work of practicing and actually learning how to play. And it wasn't just Guitar Hero, but it was Guitar Hero with a drum set. And so it was something that I really, really wanted. I knew deep down too that this is a present that my parents would get me. We had our list for Santa, we had our list for our parents, and I just knew deep down my parents would get me this present. And I was so excited for this gift, 
that I went searching for it through the house, just in case I might find it somewhere. Now, my parents are actually here, and I don't know if they know this story, but I totally found it. Yes, it was in the downstairs coat closet behind all of my grandparents' jackets that we still kept for some reason. It was the one closet that we never cleaned, and so it was the perfect hiding spot. So that whole season leading up to Christmas, anytime I was home alone or I at least thought I had a good opportunity, I would sneak my way over to that closet, open the door, and just stare at it. Guitar Hero World Tour. It was right there. You can picture me as a little kid sitting outside of this closet, staring at a big box, just imagining how much fun I was going to have with this game. All of the anticipation in the world, waiting for Christmas to come. I knew what was coming, and I spent weeks just thinking about this present and what would happen when I finally receive that gift. And this is a picture of the season that we're entering together as a church, the season of Advent. It's a season where we wait with eager anticipation for the arrival of a Savior. We get to celebrate waiting for Jesus to show up. And if you thought Guitar Hero World Tour sounded like a great present, it actually pales in comparison to the God who sends Jesus into our world to save it. And for this Advent season together, we're entering a new series called Rough Roots and Beautiful Branches. It's a series where we're going to be focusing on family and most specifically parts of Jesus's own family tree. And to do this, we've picked out pieces from the genealogy of the Gospel of Matthew. A genealogy, if that's a big word, is basically just a list of names that in Matthew starts with Abraham and ends with Jesus. But actually, in the context of the whole Bible and Matthew's Gospel in particular, a genealogy is not just a list of names. It's actually a lineage that tells a story and has a theological point to it. Because if we were to go through this list with a fine comb or a small magnifying glass, we'd actually find out that there are some names that are missing. And even all of the names that are supposed to be on this list, if it was accurate that the Bible has other names, we wouldn't find all of them. And so instead, what we learn from its structure, it has three groupings of 14 couples. We see that through this structure, it's actually trying to make a specific point. We know that it's more than just a list. And so Matthew's genealogy is pointing to something greater than just the list in itself. It's actually pointing to the hope that comes with Jesus. It's the redemption of all the stories that are picked out for Jesus's lineage. And peculiar too in Matthew's genealogy, which is why we picked it for this series, is some of the people that are highlighted. There are five women mentioned, four by name, and it's their stories that, and those involved in those stories that we're going to be looking at together. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the unnamed Bathsheba, and Mary. And now, before we jump into the story itself, there's a bit of an interpretation of these stories that I kind of want us to throw out of our minds, because there is a way too easy way of telling these stories that turn out to be atypical. There's a way that paints the wrong picture. 
And sometimes these stories are looked at and the only thing that is said, and I hope you hear me carefully here, the only thing that is said, and even sinful women made it into Jesus' genealogy. Isn't that great? And that's where the story ends. But what this disregards is that the women in these stories are actually the heroes. Sometimes they're the victims. And so we're actually given a genealogy in Matthew's gospel where women's stories, their victories, their plights are put on equal footing with that of the men's story. And actually often in these stories, our biblical heroes, men like Judah or King David, turn out to be the villains of these stories. And so in Matthew's genealogy, it's not even a subtle point, it's an exclamation. Because Jesus' genealogy, if we read it right, actually saves us from any unintentional sexism or racism that might creep into our theology, that might creep into the way that we believe God is. And so if we truly see these stories, we're going to see that God's heart is for every and any person. And so as a church, what we're going to be seeing is these stories just as what they are. And hopefully, we get to anticipate what this means in the context of the redemption that ultimately comes through Jesus. Now, this does, however, create a bit of a tension that it's important to name. Because these aren't all fun stories. They aren't all happy holiday Hallmark movies. These are actually hard stories because the roots of Jesus's family can actually be rough. But it's these stories that we're going to allow to inform our own family lives and our family-like relationships. And so for some of us, that might actually be tough because we just had wonderful Thanksgivings where everyone was grateful and got along so well. It's been a good year and we couldn't be more excited for the next round of celebrations that are going to come. For us, thinking about family trouble might actually not feel quite right after that. And yet, there are other of us in this room that just had Thanksgivings we'd rather forget. And we're dreading the idea of another round of celebrations coming up. For you, family life this year has actually been hard. And so you are ready to come to church to bring back some Christmas cheer. And we don't want to re-enter those difficulties. And so it's because of this dual context that I have a bit of a challenge for us for this Advent season. The challenge is not to shy away from these stories. Don't shy away from what might be coming up from within you. Because although these might be hard stories, if we really take the space to consider them, we're going to see that they're good news. Not just good news for us, but good news for our friends, our families, and our relationships. These are stories of rough roots which ultimately become beautiful branches. And as we lean into this challenge of Advent, the hope of Jesus' arrival, our stories and our families will get to grow into these beautiful branches as well. So will you lean into that challenge with us this Advent season? I'll take that as a yes. So (laughs) diving into today's story, we are jumping into Genesis chapter 38. It's actually a long story, so instead of reading the entire uh, passage for us today, I'm going to do some summarizing. So just note, there may be some small details we're skipping over, but I'm, wi- I'm trying to give you the gist of it at this point. So we're jumping into Genesis chapter 38, 
and we're introduced to a man named Judah. And he's actually one of the brothers of Joseph, the one with the coat of many colors. He's thrown into a well. He becomes friends with Pharaoh. And oddly, this story that we're looking at today comes right in the middle of Joseph's story. It completely interrupts it. So what that means is the writers felt that this is an important enough story to interrupt an even more important story that's happening around it. And so uh, we're told that Judah has three sons. The first son, and it could get a little complicated, so do your best to follow along. The first son is married to a woman named Tamar. And so as it turns out, what we find out through the story, this first son is wicked. He's wicked in God's eyes, and he dies. And so now, according to their culture, this creates a bit of a problem. Judah's now second son is supposed to marry the first son's wife and give her a descendant through him. This is called leveret marriage, and it's a cultural designation basically to help the first son's name to have his lineage carried on. We see this explained in Deuteronomy chapter 25. It says this, If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. And so this is sort of the cultural stew that they're living in and what is supposed to be happening in that story. And so for some reason now, the second son doesn't want to do this. He's not into that dictate, the leveret marriage. And so trying to put this tactfully, he plays his part in such a way as that would not be possible. And so just like the first son, we learn that the second son is showed to be wicked and he also dies. So the first two sons have both died. And now this puts Judah in a difficult spot. He not only has one son left, his youngest, who by his cultural rights is now supposed to be given over to Tamar, but he's worried now that Tamar is cursed and that if he were to give his last son, he would lose him as well. And so he couldn't see Tamar. He couldn't see the wickedness even of his own sons that led to their own deaths. And so Judah, to potentially save his last son, carries out an act of deception. He lies and under the guise of telling Tamar to just wait till he's a little older, sends her away to go live with her family. He sends her off to be a widow in her parents' house. But as time passes, we see in the story that Judah never makes right on what he originally promised. So as we, readers, are really trying to see Tamar, we can recognize from the get-go that in this story, she's the one who's been wronged. She's been betrayed. She, because of their culture, deserves a descendant, deserves a child, and culturally, someone who would be giving her the necessary independence to actually live a good and full life. Without a husband or an heir, she would not have the same opportunity to create her own livelihood. Judah has actually robbed her, in some sense, of her own life. And so what does she do? Does she leave things as they are? Does she do nothing and just resign to her own fate? We actually see that no. She takes things into her own hands. 
And so at this point of the story, Judah, the father of the three sons, has lost his wife. She's passed away, and he's on his way to the local city. Tamar hears about this, knows she's been wronged, and then takes advantage of this opportunity. She disguises herself with a veil and waits at the entrance of the city. The story then says that Judah doesn't recognize her and thinks she's a prostitute. And he procures her and propositions himself to be with her. And she's supposed to be provided payment. And in the meantime, while she waits to be paid, Judah gives a promise through his seal, his cord, and his staff. He says, hold on to these while you wait till my payment. And so through their interaction, Tamar actually gets pregnant. And this is where we jump into the story of the scripture that we read from today. So this is Genesis 38, starting at verse 24. It reads this. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. But Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. And so as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law in more ways than one. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal cord and staff these are. And so verse 26 says that Judah recognized them and says, she is more righteous than I because I would not give her my son Shelah, the third son, and he did not sleep with her again. And so in the story, Tamar then gives birth to twins, and that's where Matthew's genealogy states. Matthew 1.3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. So for us, this might seem like a story that feels very foreign. We don't have leveret marriage as a part of our culture, and so it might make it difficult to try to translate what's happening in this story into our own lives. So to help us, I want to just break down the story into three themes that can help us think through it through our own perspective. And for you sitting there, this is actually a really great way to read hard stories in the Bible. If you're struggling with a story or it doesn't make sense, take it in small parts and try and break it down into themes to try and get a sense of what's going on. That's how, that's how I had to handle this one. So it's just a fun tidbit for you. So our three themes that we're going to quickly go through this morning, the themes are betrayal, righteous action, and repentance. So betrayal. Judah in this story betrays Tamar. And this is the the theme that I actually had the hardest time writing personally. Because as we talk about family in this series, bringing up the topic of betrayal feels hard or even harsh. But with it being here in the story, it felt important for us not to ignore it which honestly is exactly how betrayal acts in our relationships. When it happens, we can't just ignore it. Betrayal comes in all shapes and sizes. It could be a misuse of trust, the breaking of a promise, uh, saying one thing and doing another. And if we all really think long and hard enough, we could probably come up with a story from our lives where we felt betrayed by another person. And so for Tamar, she was at the mercy of Judah's decision-making, and she deserved an opportunity to have a descendant. But Judah betrayed her. He lied about his intentions, and he didn't give her the things that she needed. And so this betrayal left her with a choice. 
would she do nothing? Or would she fight for what it was she rightly deserved? And so this is where that second theme comes in, the theme of righteous action. We find out in this story that Tamar was actually in the right for everything that she does in the story. She was right to fight for what was hers. And we know this not only in the cultural context, but the story itself says it. In verse 26, Judah says, she is more righteous than I am. And so she's declared to be in the right for all that she's done in this story. And so this is where the story might brush up against our own cultural sensibilities, where it makes less sense to us. But when we look at this story, we need to see it for what it shows. It shows a father-in-law and a daughter-in-law having an interaction that doesn't normally occur between them, especially under the use of deception. But our story, it never actually worries about that part. In fact, all it does is show Tamar to be wise, to be crafty, and to be completely righteous. And so for us, the story is telling us to be wise, to take righteous action of our own as it's needed in our families, in our friendships, and in our relationships. Because sometimes it takes the action of a good friend to step in when it's needed. Sometimes it takes someone to speak up to break a cycle that won't stop repeating. Sometimes it takes a daughter-in-law to fight for what is right. And in our story, the righteous action by Tamar actually leads us to the final theme, the theme of repentance. Judah realizes in this story what he's done wrong through what Tamar has done. Let's look at this interaction of the story one more time. Because once Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant, he immediately reaches out in anger. He says, bring her out and have her burned to death. And so again, we see Judah not considering or seeing Tamar at all. He only considers his own perspective. So Tamar actually opens his eyes to his own blindness throughout the whole situation. And so when they meet in his anger, she says, see if you recognize whose seal, cord, and staff these are. This, this moment finally opens Judah's eyes. He finally recognizes not only what had actually happened by the gate, but he recognizes his own wrongdoing throughout the whole story. And so here, verse 26, one more time. It says, Judah recognized these and said, she is more righteous than I am since I wouldn't give her my son Shelah. So, to overcome Judah's betrayal, it took righteous action by Tamar for him to come to repentance, for him to actually see what it was that he did wrong, to admit to it, and to take steps to make it right. So then, in conclusion, what do we do with this story? How do we walk away from this? What should we learn? And this is where I run into a little bit of uh, a personal fear I have in telling this story. My fear is that we would see these themes of betrayal, righteous action, and repentance and use these as excuses to bring all of our old skeletons out of the closet. That we would hear these stories and bring back that one fight we had that was never really resolved. Or that we would use Tamar and Judah to bring out these things that are actually meant to stay in the past. And so amidst that fear, my hope instead is that when we hear this story, that we don't be brash, that we don't rush into the first conflict that comes to mind, 
Instead, I actually have faith that while we've been talking, that God's spirit has been moving in this space and has actually started to stir up something in some of you. That God is bringing to light something that might need to be addressed. Because instead of using this story as a battering ram, let's use it as a starting point. Because maybe in this holiday season, when it's appropriate, it's actually time for us to start the process of reconciliation. Maybe it's time for us to gain some perspective and to see things that we haven't yet been able to see. And so finally, I want to leave us then with a last question. The question is that if this hope of Advent, the hope of God sending a Savior, if this hope is real, what would you do with it? If it's true that God has sent Jesus into this world to save it, how would you let that choose what happens in your family relationships, in your friendships, in your work interactions? If that hope is true and real, what would change for you? Because for some of us, that means seeing where we need to be more like Judah, where we need to recognize what it is that we've actually done wrong on our own. And for others of us, that might mean seeing the ways that we need to be more like Tamar, to wisely stand up for ourselves and take action. It's my hope that we start to see ourselves in this story and see what God might be calling us to as the starting point in the process of reconciliation. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for this time that we have together this morning. God, it's, it can be hard to come together and to hear hard stories that might stir us in ways that God, we weren't really prepared for. But God, can we take solace in the fact, not only that we're doing this together as a church, but that God, you're with us every step of the way. Whether it's recognizing things that we've done wrong that are hard to admit, or God, starting to strike up the courage to stand up for ourselves in ways that we need to. God, would we know that amidst these starting points of reconciliation, that we not only have you with us, but that you are the hope that this all points to as well. And ultimately, God, we just thank you so much for who you are, and we thank you for the fact that you love us. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.